Hey, Andrew here. If you uh, haven't listened to Monad 1, What is a Monad?, then you might be a little bit confused about the naming of the episodes on the podcast. So what I've done is I have some shorter and less highly produced episodes that I'm calling monads, and that's what you're about to hear. But the episodes that I was the most obsessive about and put the most effort and time into, I'm calling those episodes full episodes as part of a full season So go to the seasonal episodes if you want to hear Reductio at its best. But if you want to hear me kind of playing around with the medium and and playing around with ideas uh, that I find interesting in in a little bit shorter and more informal format, uh, then listen to the monads. I hope you enjoy. Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. During the Vietnam War, my uncle Scott Kretschmer was attending a Quaker boarding school. He submitted his conscientious objector paperwork in Cincinnati, and though he wasn't himself a Quaker, his having attended a Quaker boarding school may have helped his case somewhat. Well, I'm sure it helped. He was granted conscientious objector status, and and though he had many battles to fight in maintaining his exemption from the draft, and though he feels he was mistreated at times by the draft board, he was never drafted. His reasons for being a conscientious objector were moral, he says. Well, mine definitely political. It wasn't really religious. So how did you come to be a conscientious objector? Well, I uh, our family was pretty much nonviolent. I've always been nonviolent. We were kind of raised that way. I went to a you know a Quaker boarding school, which the more we talked, because we were all at that age, the more we all realized that the you know we were looking at the same thing, and we all had some different reasons and stuff, you know. A lot of the guys in the Quaker boarding school were just super religious, you know, and that was their basis. My basis was that it was immoral. It wasn't a a just action, that there was no reason for us to be there, and uh, it was, in my mind, an illegal action, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what, that was the basis of my you have to do kind of almost like a thesis, you know, to, to get your, you know, you don't just apply for it. You have to tell them why and give them a good description. And um, Basically, I, I told them I wouldn't go and the reason why. And if they forced me to go, I would still do it. He spent some of his time during the war working a bit for Goodwill, but then more time working for the Cincinnati Free Clinic all the time making no more than a soldier's salary of $50 a week, but while also having to pay room and board. He got by with a little help from his friends. This is one form of conscientious objection, refusing to participate in something as a private citizen for religious or moral reasons. You can imagine how there might be certain religious objections to something like the Vietnam War, but conscientious objector status was open to the non-religious folks like my uncle as well. 
On June 26, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court decided the case Obergefell v. Hodges, resulting in the extension of the right to marry to same-sex couples. A few months earlier, Kim Davis had been elected Rowan County Clerk in Kentucky. Despite being ordered to begin issuing marriage licenses to hopeful spouses of the same gender, Davis refused, citing religious objections to same-sex marriage. In fact, she stopped issuing licenses to all couples so that she wouldn't have to give licenses to same-sex couples. In time, a U.S. District Court ordered her to begin issuing marriage licenses again, and her attempt at an appeal was unsuccessful. In spite of this order, she continued to refuse to issue marriage licenses and was eventually jailed for contempt of court. In the end, she modified the marriage licenses so they wouldn't contain her name and was ordered not to interfere with her deputy clerks as they went about issuing marriage licenses as the Constitution required. This was, in Davis's eyes, a form of conscientious objection. The central question I'm interested in today is, should Kim Davis attempt to avoid punishment for her civil disobedience by appeal to an exemption based on her religious convictions? Should she have tried to avoid whatever legal sanctions she was facing by appeal to the otherwise freely available religious exemptions to laws requiring or prohibiting certain things? So I spoke with Dr. Brian Hutler, we went to UCLA together, about this and many other cases. He recently had a paper published that deals with these issues. Okay, so my name is Brian Hutler, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins University. And I work on issues related to religious exemptions in healthcare and also healthcare law and policy more generally. And my background is in law and philosophy. I have a JD PhD from UCLA. And I wrote a dissertation there on religious freedom and what it could be in a liberal democracy of the sort that we have or had or aspire to. <laughs> like to tell ourselves that we have. <laughs> yeah, we used to like to tell ourselves. Yeah, and more generally I work on, I'm interested in the ways in which liberal institutions and values are being misused or corrupted in ways that advance illiberal causes and interests. And I think religious freedom is one of those, and I've thought about the way that free speech is used in this way too. And so the paper that I think we're going to discuss today has to do with a particular misuse of religious freedom in the U.S. that I think is becoming pretty widespread and pervasive, but just in recent years. And in, in particular, the way that religious freedom, legal protections are used for advancing political ends or political agendas. So to unpack that a bit, we live or like to think that we live in a liberal democracy. And in a liberal democracy, there are certain rights that citizens have. One of those rights is a freedom to practice one's religion. What happens, though, when someone uses a liberal right, like the right to practice one's own religion, so as to advance political goals that run counter to liberal democracy? Hutler thinks that in these cases, something's gone seriously wrong. So, Brian, can you define for us what you mean by liberal, first of all? Because uh, it's, it's not liberal in the sense of liberal versus conservative or liberal left-wing ideology or something like that. Yeah, it's not easy to define, but something like <laughs> political institutions that are committed to having 
a diversity of different sorts of people interacting together as political equals, as citizens with political equality within shared institutions that reflect something like shared values. Okay, so a liberal society is a pluralist society in that it's fundamentally the coming together of diverse individuals who want to associate with one another or are forced to associate with one another by history or colonialism or the like, but nevertheless refuse to conform to one monoculture, one dominant cultural regime. So a fundamental part of liberal society is the basic equality of all citizens. Everyone who's a full citizen in a liberal society must have basic equal access to political discourse, political decision-making, and political office. At least that's the goal. And so I think typically, though not necessarily always, liberal a liberal state would go along with a democracy. So part of the commitment to citizens being political equals is that they have some right and some opportunities to engage in collective political decision making. But so the core of a liberal state, I think, is a kind of celebration of a bunch of different types of diversity, a diverse group of people make up its citizenry, and that's reflected in the fact that the institutions that they share and that they live within aren't set up to express just one particular set of values that may not be shared by most people. So it's worth noting that um, basically everyone in American politics is a liberal in this sense of the word. Right, it's good, like, yeah. Maybe. Like every, <laughs> everyone from like the libertarian to the like um, even even pretty far left on the spectrum. Um, those, those all sort of count as liberal to a certain extent, even though there are exceptions along the way. Yeah, right. So I think for a long time in American history, that was definitely true. And you're right, of course, that liberal in the sense that I'm using it, it you know, it draws on a tradition in political philosophy going back to Locke and, and others and developed in the work of John Rawls in the 20th century, especially. But it's not the proper contrast with liberal is not like conservative or Republican or something. The proper contrast with liberal in this sense is with authoritarian or um, some kind of monocultural political community. So I actually think we're finding a lot of illiberal in this sense views becoming prevalent in the American political landscape, including among professional politicians mm -hmm. in recent years in ways that certainly hasn't been as true throughout the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So one example that matters for my work is politicians and other people, citizens engaged in the political arena who have interests in creating a state and maybe by extension, a community that reflects their particular religious values um, at, at the expense of or to the exclusion of values of other people. So that's a form mm -hmm. of illiberalism or anti-liberalism that I think is quite prevalent mm -hmm. in the political landscape today. So it seems like w w at least one of the most prominent examples of that is the like pushing of a monoculture. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I think monoculture could be a useful contrast to what liberalism aspires to. I think, you know, mm -hmm. a liberal liberalism where we have 
political equality and other things like that is only is just one way of having a diverse political community. But it does seem like a pretty good way of navigating diversity <laughs> if if what we want is diversity. So liberalism is found throughout the traditional spectrum of American politics from certain of those who subscribe to certain forms of left-wing ideology to a few who subscribe to center-right perspectives on society to libertarians. So some folks in all of these groups are liberals in this sense, while others are not. Folks who would rather have a monoculture or a single set of cultural norms and expectations and want to ostracize or punish those who don't subscribe to that set of norms and expectations. Those folks are illiberal or anti-liberal. Plenty on the right, left, center, top, bottom of American politics match this description, but plenty others don't. And those folks who aren't bent on bringing about a singular set of cultural norms and values share a set of liberal values with others of even quite different political stripes. So, Brian, what got you thinking about this project in particular? I think, I don't know if people remember anymore, but so there was a Supreme Court case from 2014 called Hobby Lobby. Oh, they remember. Yeah. <laughs> a Hobby Lobby just opened in my town in Chico, and um, so... The, the debate yeah. is raging again. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, I'm glad that people remember. So the Supreme Court decided 5-4 that this company, Hobby Lobby, which is owned by a family, but it's still a public company in the sense that it's for profit and that it's open to the public. It's not like a club that you join. It's a normal store that you go and buy craft goods. At. And the Supreme Court held in that case that this company was entitled to a certain kind of religious freedom protection in particular to an, an accommodation that was built into the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, because the corporation slash the family that owned it had an objection to paying for the insurance coverage for certain forms of contraception, which they would have to do under the Affordable Care Act, at least as long as they were providing insurance to their employees. So that case, I mean, it was very controversial at the time and, and maybe still is. And I think a lot of the attention focused on the fact that it was a corporation receiving this religious freedom protection. I mean, you know, it called to mind, I think, for people, Citizens United, the case from 2010 about granting free speech rights to corporation. And there was a lot of just kind of hand-wringing and or outright anger about the thought that corporations could have religious conscientious convictions that entitled them to protection. But that always struck me, that line of, I mean, not that that's not something we should worry about, but that always struck me as slightly beside the point. But it took me a long time to figure out why. So it took me a long time to figure out what aspect of it was bothering me. Because again, the fact that it was a corporation raises some issues, but I don't think that got to the heart of what the case stands for or why it's important. I don't know what the motivations of the company or slash the family that owns it really were. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, they were sincere in the sense that they just didn't want to have to pay for something that they believed was wrong. But in practice, that case came to stand for something really important politically. And it was a, a way, a kind of rallying cry for people who were opposed to the Affordable Care Act quite broadly, and then also opposed to abortion quite broadly. And 
opposed to government perceived meddling in healthcare and in reproductive health in particular. And part of why I think it took on this political character is the fact that Hobby Lobby is not a small company. I mean, they have something in the tens of thousands of employees. And so what they decided to do could have a big impact on the way that people experience the Affordable Care Act on the ground. And adding to this, Hobby Lobby wasn't the only institution, large institution, that challenged the same contraceptive mandate provision. And so taken together, all of these religious freedom challenges to having to comply really did impact the government's ability to ensure that people had access to contraceptive care. I mean, the, right. the kind of landslide of religious objections created a real difference in the policy, in the ability of the government to carry out the policy that it had, you know, through normal democratic processes decided to carry out. The Affordable Care Act was passed duly enacted by Congress. The contraceptive mandate was added by the um, Obama administration, but in, a, mm. in the appropriate manner. <laughs> I mean, is is that an appropriate kind of tactic for people who oppose the Affordable Care Act or the contraceptive mandate provision to kind of upset the apple cart, interfere with the enforcement of it through religious freedom litigation? So seeking an exemption for themselves or their institution, but kind of indirectly seriously affecting the government's ability to enforce this law, to provide contraceptive coverage to hundreds of thousands, millions of people. There are a number of different objections you might raise here. Maybe you think people shouldn't use their religious convictions to attempt to control the behavior of others. Maybe you think religious beliefs shouldn't influence politics at all. Or maybe you think some of the claims for religious exemptions are inauthentic or really more political than religious. Brian Hutler's main concern here is something entirely different. The problem can't be, if, you, if we agree that it's okay for religious beliefs to show up in public space sometimes, in public discourse, then the problem can't just be that they're bringing their religion into politics. Mm -hmm. So there's something about the use of religious freedom protection itself that I've come to think. Mm -hmm causes the problem. Right. So just as Hutler is thinking about this Hobby Lobby case and trying to identify what he finds disturbing about it, another 5-4 vote in the Supreme Court lands, the Obergefell case I mentioned at the top of the episode, the decision that officially secured the right to marry for all American adults. You know, if you zoom out just a, a little bit, you might think, okay, Hobby Lobby and Obergefell, they actually fit together in this nice tapestry where this liberal... <laughs> fantasy where we have religious people <laughs> over here and we have non-religious people over here, some of whom want to be in same-sex marriages and the religious people don't approve of that practice, but we're going to all live together and part of how we're going to all live together is by granting the right to same-sex marriage over here, but then mm -hmm. having a bunch of carve-outs from laws that infringe on religious conscientious convictions on the other side and we all live mm -hmm. together by just kind of leaving well enough alone mm -hmm. the good fences make good neighbors model of liberalism <laughs> maybe but hutler doesn't like this picture of liberalism i think that picture breaks down pretty fast if the religious freedom protection can be used to try to undermine or disrupt the policy that we've set over on the other side of the fence, right? 
So imagine two neighbors, Samir and Sasha. They agree to allow each other to do whatever they like in their own yards, and as a result, they get along pretty well. One way this might break down is if Sasha wants to shoot target practice in her backyard and Samir wants to enjoy a nice, quiet, relaxing afternoon with his children in the pool. Sasha's activity is incompatible with Samir's activity. But imagine if it broke down another way entirely so Sasha, instead of choosing to do something that happens to disrupt Samir's chosen activity, Sasha instead chooses to do in her yard something directed at Samir. She hosts the campaign to convince all the other neighbors to try and get Samir to move out of the neighborhood. So she uses the freedoms that she secured through the original agreement to each their own, good fences make good neighbors. She's using that freedom to limit the freedom of Samir. She's using liberty to do something illiberal. And I think we saw pretty quickly that that started to happen in the aftermath to the Obergefell case. So the decision itself was immediately denounced by a lot of religious groups, some claiming that it was just the legally wrong outcome or morally, morally bad outcome, some claiming actually that the court was acting illegitimately and even recognizing this right. You know, very soon after Obergefell, there was pretty clear and deliberate steps taken by some large religious groups and political figures to use religious freedom protections or to claim religious freedom protections as part of the way that they broadcast their views about the illegitimacy of the Obergefell decision or the moral wrongness mm -hmm. of the Obergefell decision. And, and honestly, as part of an attempt to kind of drum up popular resistance against that right to same-sex marriage. After the Obergefell decision, there were people appealing to a right of conscience or a right to practice one's religious convictions to protect them when they refused to follow the interpretations of the Constitution that came from the Supreme Court. A court told her to do it because that was part of her job now, given what the Supreme Court had decided the Constitution said. She still refused and claimed that her refusal should be protected. So she should be protected from any kind of negative consequences, which could range from losing her job in theory to jail time. Because if a judge orders you to do something and you don't do it, that's contempt of court and you can go to jail. And in mm. fact, she did spend a, a few days in jail. But she argued that she should be shielded from any of these sort of negative consequences of her refusal by religious freedom protection. So we might think it's fine for Kim Davis to refuse to issue these licenses so long as she allows her deputy clerks to issue licenses in her stead. We might also think she's allowed to engage in civil disobedience. She's morally allowed to express her moral beliefs by refusing to participate in a government action, sort of like my uncle did in the Vietnam era. There's lots of reasons to be unhappy with that suggested fix, and I'm, I'm not sure there is is a good fix to this particular case. But I don't know, it's mm -hmm. worth, I guess, just remembering that, that there, there often are ways of kind of navigating these complicated waters. And mm -hmm. at least so long as the religious person who wants an exemption or an, an accommodation really just wants that and isn't trying to, in fact, impact the ability of the county to issue marriage licenses. But typically when someone engages in civil disobedience, one takes on the legal consequences of that action. So Martin Luther King Jr., Henry David Thoreau, and others went to jail for their moral convictions. In fact, they argued that you must take the legal consequences or you're doing civil disobedience wrong. 
But what happens when someone avoids the legal consequences of civil disobedience, or attempts to, by appeal to their own freedom of religion, and starts to feel more like Sasha, our very bad neighbor from before, it's someone using their own liberty to restrict the liberty of others. But that's not even necessarily the core of Hutler's argument. Well, yeah, let's put it this way. If what she's doing is trying to protest Obergefell, but she's also given a religious exemption, then she's given this kind of special legal entitlement to protest the law that she doesn't like. And so one thing that I argue is, even in that case, there's something problematic from the point of view of the state's commitment to political equality. So the thought is that the state shouldn't be granting legal permissions to people where they're, when they're going to use those permissions to participate politically in ways that other people can't. It'd be sort of like if the government granted a permit to hold a protest in the public park to one group, but then denied the permit to another group just based on the views that they were expressing, right? So there's a clear freedom of speech problem here. The government shouldn't be involved in deciding who does and who does not get to protest, at least we might think. But the deeper problem, as far as Hitler is concerned, is a political equality problem, a case where some people get greater access to the political realm or to engage in political discourse. That is, the government gives you a right to practice and exercise your religion, but shouldn't also give you the right to use your religion to gain access to more political speech. If the government says nobody gets to protest in the park, yeah. that might still raise free speech concerns, hmm. but it wouldn't raise political equality concerns. So you're worried about a case where society says, okay, you can do this thing because you have this religious belief or the set of religious practices, but the thing they're being allowed to do or the restriction that they're being exempt from has to do with politics. It's political in that it's participating in the political process in a particular way. And so you're, it seems like you're endorsing the general claim that we shouldn't be given religious exemptions to people for political activities or for restraining from things that would be political. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the difference, I think it gets tricky because the difference between an activity that's political and one that's not can, in some cases, come down to the motivations of the person engaged in it and and the other auxiliary actions that they take around it. So suppose that there's a church that takes in a number of undocumented immigrants, you know, as a form of sanctuary. So it's part of their religious practice to house and, and feed these people. Um, and to protect them too. Mm -hmm. And so then suppose further that um, ICE gets wind of their presence in this church and either comes directly or, or even gets a court to order that um, the church open its doors or release these people into ICE custody. The church could decline to do so and they could decline to do so or they could refuse to do so, I mean. And they could refuse to do so on religious grounds, I think, um, mm -hmm. plausible religious grounds. I think that that sort of argument, um, depending on exactly which religious freedom law they would be citing to, that's they might have a strong case for religious freedom mm -hmm. protection. Right. Um, it's part of their religious practice to protect these people, to take them in and clothe them and feed them and protect them from harm. And mm -hmm. it would be a serious violation of their religious conscience mm -hmm. and beliefs to right. turn them over to ICE. So I'm sympathetic of the religious freedom claim there, in, at least in theory. 
But now suppose that, you know, the church or its members also believe that we should have an open borders policy or that ICE enforcement tactics are really bad in general mm -hmm. um, or that we should disband ICE. Those are political. Now those are political beliefs that they have. So, you know, I want to say, I think this is tricky, but I want to say that the fact that they have political beliefs or that their members have political beliefs doesn't necessarily prevent or block their access to religious freedom protection in a case like this, on my view. But I do think my view would impose some constraints on what a church like this could or should do. Like, I think they shouldn't post signs saying down with ice or hold press conferences, you know, claiming religious freedom protection as a part of their grand strategy to promote open borders policy for the U.S. I mean, I think they have to almost if they want to have access to that, the, the legal protection that religious freedom laws provide, then that comes with a kind of caveat that you do so kind of quietly and I wouldn't say secretly, but without turning it into a political spectacle or using it as a political tactic. And I'm not saying that the church is prohibited from protesting ICE or that, right. again, like, you know, we talked about earlier, I don't think that religious people should just stay out of politics or keep their religious views out of the political discourse. It's just mm -hmm. that if you're claiming this special legal protection that we provide only in kind of extreme situations, and it's this special legal protection that other people don't necessarily have access to, mm -hmm. you can't then use that to, to do your political activity or to protect your political activity. So it seems like the central claim, the central worry is the political equality worry. Right. So everyone should be politically equal. So if you're able to engage in a certain type of protest, then I should be able to engage in that type of protest as well. Yeah, right. I mean, the concern is that if the government grants religious exemptions or religious protections, religious accommodations that are then used to advance a political end, then that's like putting a thumb on the scale of the political community's decision making process. So there's no guarantee in a liberal society. Uh, there's no claim that there should be a guarantee that we can all do all the same things but there should be a guarantee that we can all engage in the political process and that the political conversations and political discourse, uh, and we can engage in all those things in, in much the same way. Yeah, I think ideally the ways in which we would engage, the opportunities we'd have for engagement with the profile of opportunities that each citizen would have for engagement would look very similar. Um, mm -hmm. I think in practice that's of course not true. Uh, right. And so, you might think of this concern I've raised about the political use of religious freedom as just one minor wrinkle on this huge tapestry of ways right. in which we're not, in fact, able to participate equally in our current mm -hmm. political process. So you might think this is just one tiny piece of a conversation around our equal status to political goods like platforms, audiences, information, credibility, and so on. You might think, why is Hitler picking at nits? Doesn't this pale in comparison to, for instance, Citizens United? But there's one thing about the political use of religious exemptions that stands out to me as deserving particular attention, which is that the extra influence that someone might get through this process 
um, isn't just the result of societal factors or market factors or economic factors or, you know, things mm -hmm. which totally matter politically and we should definitely take steps to try to even out and distribute equitably. But here it's not just societal factors that give them an edge. It's actually a mm -hmm. choice made by the legal system that could potentially oh, give okay. them an edge in the political process. And furthermore, what makes religious exemptions interestingly different from a case like Citizens United, where corporations with lots of money can engage in political speech, is that the religious exemptions case is a case where the government has said, you folks have this exemption as a fundamental right. And so if religious folks use their religious exemptions from certain sanctions to bolster their political speech, they are using a right directly granted to them by our liberal constitution to tip the scales of political equality. In Citizens United, though, the right to possess all that money isn't directly granted by the constitution. Instead, it's a byproduct of the way our society is put together economically. This is perhaps a subtle point, but once more, there's a difference between saying corporations can buy political ads, and then because there happen to be fantastically rich corporations, there are fantastic inequalities in political speech. But that's not the government essentially saying you can do this and you can't. In the religious exemptions case, though, it would be the government saying you're exempt from these sanctions and restrictions on political speech, but you're not. So to summarize, Hitler's argument is as follows. The claim that I defend here is that the government shouldn't allow people to use religious exemptions for political ends. And the reason the government shouldn't do that is because of its assumed commitment to political equality. The thought being that if the government grants an exemption to one person or some people, that it then kind of of necessity doesn't grant to others. And then that exemption is used for political ends. That creates a political inequality between the people who are granted the exemption and those who are not. The central concern here is ensuring that everyone has equal access to the political arena. If religious exemptions give people unequal access to the political arena, then the government needs to act to equalize that to maintain consistency with basic liberal principles. So just as I'm finishing up editing this episode, Brian Hutler sent me this, uh, this article about these Catholic anti-nuke activists who were found guilty of trespassing and defacing federal government property. They attempted to use a religious exemption, but they were denied. They couldn't use religious freedom as a defense. And this is an interesting case because most of the cases that I discussed with Hutler in our original interview were cases where people on the socially conservative side were using a claimed religious exemption as a means of trying to protect themselves when they were engaging in political action. And this is a case where someone arguably on the left is doing essentially the same. So Hitler's argument, he wanted to stress, applies to all sides of the political spectrum equally. This, this use of a religious exemption or a religious freedom to prevent the legal consequences of civil disobedience isn't legitimate, whether you're protesting gay marriage or whether you're protesting nuclear armaments. In philosophy, a principle like Hitler's central claim can be tested by seeing how it applies to cases that you're pretty sympathetic to. And I'm pretty sympathetic to nuclear disarmament. But Hitler's central principle 
has a say that the nuclear protesters cannot use a religious exemption to prevent punishment or sanction. This does seem right. It does seem like their religious belief shouldn't play a special role in protecting them in this case. And so, yeah, you might think Hitler's principle gives us the right outcome here. We talked a lot more about these and other cases, so I decided to publish some bits of our conversation as a separate bonus. So if you want to dig a little bit deeper, then go listen to that. It'll be a separate download in the uh, podcast feed. Thanks as always to our loyal Patreon patrons. You can join them in giving a dollar or more per month at patreon.com reductio. This has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin. <laughs>